I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. doing podcasts adam buxton here welcome to podcast number 105 which features the second of two conversations i had last month with british comedian writer and director chris morris i'm assuming that if you're listening to this you will have heard the first part that contains a brief overview of chris's career thus far so i'm not going to go over all that again Instead, I'll tell you what you can expect from part two. This conversation was recorded before the conversation that went out in part one. But as you'll know if you listen to that podcast, I screwed up the main recording on this one. I'm sorry. So what you'll be hearing today is what I salvaged from my backup recorder, my little dictaphone, which was placed on the table between me and Chris... And I didn't even remember to set the backup running until about 10 minutes into the conversation. Listen, I'm a terrible person and I deserve to be put in prison. But this is the situation. We were at the King's Cross comedy venue to Northdown, where I've recorded a couple of podcasts in the past. Thanks very much to the To Northdown crew for letting us record there. And we talked about... What did we talk about? Uh, Mobile phone radiation... Chernobyl, David Bowie's last album, Black Star. You can pick a path through these. It was a proper ramble. The Pixies, Quentin Tarantino we ended up with. We also talked a bit about why Chris finds it so important to spend a lot of time, years in fact, doing research not only on his latest film, The Day Shall Come, in cinemas now. Go and see it. Support your local satirist but also his first feature, Four Lions. But, both being men in our 50s, we began by talking about colonoscopies. Not for the first time on this podcast. And at the point when I switched on my backup recorder, I just asked Chris whether he enjoyed his as much as I enjoyed mine. Hence his reference to a petamen, or theatrical farter, Surprisingly, not a word I was familiar with before Chris used it. I thought I'd explain just in case you were similarly in the dark about petamens. It's a French word, I think, roughly translating as fartomaniac. Back at the end for more waffle, but right now, with reverb heavy Morris, here we go. Blah, blah, blah. It's fun if the medical staff are nice up to a point and then it's strangely uncomfortable because if you ever have been in a situation where you've made yourself belch for a laugh, perhaps when you were seven, it's sort of like being an accidental petamen in that I think true petamens in musicals would inhale anally and then produce entertaining trumpet sounds from their rear. And this you don't have to work out how to inhale anally. For the camera to work, they just put a pipe in and pump up your intestine like a balloon so the camera can look around at all the surfaces. Right. So you feel like you have basically eaten a vast amount of gas-generating vegetable, Mm -hmm. but that's been produced by the pipe. I feel like that all the time. Yeah, but this is new. This is, you clip, have you, I mean, or maybe, but did you say you'd done this? I did the, um, I did the MRI colonoscopy, and so they pump you with fluid that has barium or whatever in it. Oh, and then, and then shoot from the outside. It's not a camera. No. No, magnetic resonance imaging. Yes. And so I think what they do is excite the carbon atoms, and then watch as they give off energy, and that creates the image. Because I had an MRI scan for something else, and in order to ease the panic of going, I think I had to go into a kind of sealed tube. Mm. And in order to stop my brain going, 
you won't be able to sit up or move for 45 minutes. I did a lot of chat about what MRI, <laughs> what magnetic resonance imaging was. Talking to the doctors? Yeah, very fast. Well, the practitioners, yeah. They're not even the doctors, are they? They're the sort of <coughs> the radiographers. Right. I had Radio 4, so I was just listening to Radio 4 very intently with my finger on the chicken switch thinking, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it. I was just... But what then, but then aspect it, of Radio 4 were you listening? Because a lot of that could send you... <laughs> it wasn't Radio 4 that I couldn't take so much as the feeling that I was just about to shit myself. Oh. And, you know, it was, yeah. you, you're inflated, as you described, but for me it was inflated with liquid. And it was so uncomfortable and painful. I mean, it's not sharply painful, but it's just the level of discomfort is off the charts. Yeah. And 45 minutes you had... I'm thinking it was 45 minutes. Yeah, I think so. I can't even remember what they were scanning for. Uh, Yeah, they'd scan for something abdominal but higher up. Right. It was all fine. But it was one of those things where they go, oh, you're over 50, well, we better just uh, check on this. Yeah. I did discover, actually, that I had these, they they call them um, kidney cysts, Mm -hmm. which apparently more people have than not, but you don't discover them until you get some sort of discomfort. And then you find out that you've got these kind of tennis ball-sized things just ballooning off your kidney. There's essentially a sort of anomaly in the membrane, utterly harmless, full of basically very boring, hummus. you know... If, hummus, what would you call it? It's not even saline, it's kind of right. um, phloem. But, um, but I actually listened to the sounds of the machine because it's basically like a sort of Aphex sound check. Yes, it's like square pusher. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so those two are head-to-head now. But it's, yeah, it, and, and I was thinking, what kind of noise is going to come through next? Because they are, there's a very high frequency range, mm-hmm. and the little kind of chirps and bleeps are quite... You, I was trying to go, is there a pattern here? What's the BPM? What's the sort of fundamental yeah, yeah. defining logic for this? And I really... I tapped into that and sort of forgot about everything else. Surely those two, um, Tom Jenkins and Richard James, have been in MRIs, don't you think? And side, come by, out. side by side. You could have a scan off and see... Maybe Has anyone done one on stage? I mean, that would be... <laughs> that would be the thing. Last night, he got, into a, he got himself scanned. I mean, he was scanning himself for hours. It was, I mean, you could imagine... I did meet a musician who'd put his head in a giant magnet for an hour as an experiment, generous offer. He, you know, a friend of his was a sort of scientist or maybe a pseudoscientist and said, I think magnets, giant electromagnets, will you put your head in one for an hour? And I'm not sure he was quite the same since. Yeah, that's like 20 years of intense mobile phone use in an hour. Yeah, why would you? Do you put your phone on airplane mode at night? You have a smartphone, do you? Not very. I mean, it's it's a a smash phone with um, old software. Yeah, that looks... 4S, an iPhone 4S. Okay. Um, Airplane mode at night. I'd sort of leave it in careless places. Mm. In fact, I'm in transition. I have the iPhone and I have the Nokia, which is still in my bike bag over there, which is my real phone, only I've only transferred about five numbers to it. But the Nokia, the 2G, the data-free option. Right. Which has to run on a 3G contract because you can't get a 2G contract anymore. That's my real phone. Unfortunately, I haven't, I haven't managed to wean off. Yeah, so on the iPhone, you don't have too many apps on there, I'm guessing. No apps. No apps. I think the apps are the route to the knowledge about yourself that you don't want to share. Yeah. Facebook being the prime. Sure. But why do you put it on, on airplane mode? Oh, just for um, the microwaves, the brain fry. Yeah. Because I think if it's, I mean, you know, you're carrying it around in your pocket the rest of the day, so I don't see what kind of difference it genuinely makes. But a friend of mine said, oh, no, you should always put it on airplane mode at night. Otherwise, it's uh, getting updates and doing data. I mean, your phone probably wouldn't be doing that much if it hasn't got any apps on. I refuse software updates. It's in the state of distress. I just go, no. Because... Ever since iTunes got worse on their software updates. That was a sad time, wasn't it? It was a sad time, but I managed... You, I think, warned me, so I never updated. So I'm running some antique version of iTunes. Yeah. Well, I think we have a slightly auto-suggestible sense about the radiation coming off a phone. I mean, it just feels bad, doesn't it? Yeah. People used to talk about radiation masks and... I mean, phone masks. I live near a phone mask and I can feel... Now, maybe some people have an internal system like bees where they can actually pick up magnetic polarity shifts. You know, I've got friends who say they can feel vibrations, but I can't feel. So it's possible that I'm just detuned. 
But also, when we were working on the film, we had a great guy who works for a, an American law agency who was our advisor on set. And he's used these things called stingrays, where basically if you, it, it's a fake phone mast. So if there's an incident, the law agencies put one up very quickly. All mobile phones in the area think it's a real mast, so they all glom onto that, and then they're all instantly readable. Hmm. And it looks like a bit of broadcasting equipment. You know, it's a van with a mast on top. Yeah. And he said that using that for four hours, you feel your brain cooking. He told me he felt his brain was going from a sort of translucent gloop to a kind of opaque white gloop, like <laughs> an egg in a saucepan. And he said that it, it, it took three days to wear off. Now, I don't know. You know, that could be psychosomatic because I think it, it's probably quite mind-blowing to sit there knowing that you've got yeah. this very powerful mast essentially coming out of the top of your head and you're reading everybody's phones. Um, so, I, you know... I don't turn off my phone. I mean, we know that, obviously... We know. It's good. It's got authority. Hasn't we it? know. It is known that invisible rays are, in some cases, very bad. If you've seen Chernobyl, then you will know that even though you can't see it, it's going to melt your fucking face off. Yeah. How did you get on with Chernobyl? I really liked it. It's good. Do you think George Monbiot was worried about it as anti-nuclear propaganda? Because Monbiot's pro-nuclear now, isn't he? Well, he had a Fukushima moment, didn't he? Where he did, he just yeah. went, actually, despite all this, it's fine. Well, maybe you not see it's fine, why. but like, it's, well, the, it's, it's the best it's the option. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I went to a talk, of a sort of a future talk recently, where all the graphs were gloomy. Population climate change, the rest. The only optimistic one was energy generation. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain point just far enough away for the futurologists to be able to say, this is our best guess. We can't, you can't hold us to this. Where renewable energy actually just becomes the cheap option and fossil fuels disappear forever. So it may not be right. I mean, nuclear, you can see the argument, but it's very, if you talk to anyone about Sellafield... I remember going round Sellafield at school, which was, I think, was it even, was it called Windscale then? It was just about the time that they disappeared the name Windscale. And rebranded, yeah. yeah. I mean... They rebranded a few times, didn't they? Well, it took, no, it seems that way, because the, the incident that gave rise to that decision happened in the 50s. Uh-huh. And it took that long for the inquiry to come out, the result of the inquiry to say, yes, this was a bad thing, it was a bad leak. So that scandal came out in the 70s and then followed quite quickly the decision to, well, if we change the name, people won't know. And actually, the scary thing is if you talk to uh, a 23-year-old about Sellafield, they have no idea. There is no geological record that includes Windscale. But people I know who have been to Sellafield and are concerned scientists say that there is, you know, there is deep storage problem. There is a deep storage problem there because... There are sort of containers, at the moment, safe. Their integrity is not busted, but they don't quite know what's in there. There's just because there's a lot of stuff has been... It's a reprocessing plant, so there's a lot of deep storage. That doesn't feel good. It feels like if you're saying the future depends on that, then one crack, one split. Mm. You're not going to get a meltdown like Chernobyl. But interestingly, and I don't know anything about the inside of George Monbiot's head, but after... Chernobyl, we in the West sort of colluded in the closing down of the idea as a problem. Once we'd gone, Russians very bad, terrible liars, bad practice at that power station, we then didn't really have much appetite for continuing an investigation into what might be wrong with this idea of nuclear power because we were dependent, you know, ourselves. And uh, there's a great book by, I can't remember her name, but she's gone through the Russian records and looked at the real casualty list mm -hmm. by visiting all the towns and villages and looking at the records of people who died. And far from it being whatever the official number was, was it 37? Yeah. Something. 
she thinks it's somewhere between 50 and 250,000 people. Yeah, which is more what the TV show was saying, wasn't it? Yeah, there was an after... Yeah, Yeah. but it's it's sort of... That TV show is very strange as well because there was almost a nostalgia element to it. Uh Uh-huh. Nostalgic awfulness. Because if you grew up in the 80s with that clamp of mutually assured destruction in front of you and in most strands of culture, whether it was Raymond Briggs or... Frankie goes to Hollywood or whatever. The yeah, all those TV suddenly movies. it's like ah, oh, we're back to the bad times. Yeah. Great, but it was very well done. I thought and very you know yeah. I was Johan Rank that was who did Bowie's last two videos. Really? Yeah, he directed uh, Chernobyl and he directed um, yes the videos for the Lazarus Black Star one, and Lazarus. Yeah. yeah, with the little button eyes. Yeah. And the silly dancing in the attic. And silly dancing in the attic, yes. Pretty good, though. It was pretty good. That really makes me cry, that bit in the attic when... Yeah, that's the best bit of the song as well. Something happened when... What was it? On the day he died. On the day he died. Yeah. Spirit lifted. But but then he does some comedy bit, doesn't he? He does a sort of bit of laughing laughing and jittering. A weird sort of wonky dance, yeah. I mean, when I first saw that, it is... I mean, when I first saw that video, I thought, ah... Gothic bollocks of the most enormous <laughs> magnitude, you know. But that's the thing. It was like my just weeks before I was looking at it, thinking, "What are you doing?" And then when Black Star came out after he had died, but morning, it came out before. I, I listened to it for two days before he died. Oh, did you? Right. And I was going. There's something good about this. There's right. something actually good about this. But I mean, good, properly good. Like the whole album is defined by a thing. Like like the best albums. Mm. There's a sort of it's not just a collection of songs. Some of his later albums were like a collection of singles. Yes. Yeah. This has a great defining feeling about it. And it sort of enriches itself with each listening. It's, it's like a proper piece of work. It's, it's, the, it's, you know, in a long canon, there's a bit of a gap. It's his best it's, since Scary Monster. It's, it's great to go out on a proper piece of work. Though. Yeah, oh God, yeah. Yeah. And that final single, No Plan... I think that's one of the best things he ever did. Yeah, I know. And, and, so, and you see Tony Visconti sort of saying, you sort of think, well, you could excuse him for being lachrymose and saying, well, you know, here's the master still, in, still at the peak of his powers, sitting at a mixing desk, talking about the releases around that time. But actually you just think, well, yeah, Matt, he's just, he basically he's woken up. Something vital. And that's the, that's the definition of anything, really, that needs to be kept or thrown away. There's just a vital element in it you may not even like it that much but you if there's a vital element you can't deny it's for keeps well he had the mother of all themes to deal with yeah but actually i mean how hard would that i i'm I'm not sure i could have had any idea how to deal with that It, it almost takes a kind of supreme act of arrogance and almost weird distancing from yourself in order to produce a work like that about your own death I mean, it's quite an odd thing to be able to do. Yeah, and in fact, when I saw the Black Star video first, I thought that there was a sort of element of um, self-regard and self-mythologizing that was a bit weird. But then afterwards, of course, it was just incredibly... It felt very poignant and very sort of prescient and clever that he was trying to deal with everything, not just his experience of nearing the end of his life, but also what he imagined people's reaction to it might be and his place. In Do you the... mean that stuff about signing off and sort of keeping you all guessing and um, little references to Major Yeah, I, uh, and... I can't give everything away and yeah. all that kind of sentiment. And, and that line in Black Star as well, something happened on the day he died, you know. That feels to me like sort of supreme camp in a way. That sort of seems to be like he's some distance away from yeah. the subject. But when he's talking about yeah, I can't give everything away. It's almost like an admission of a kind of weakness. He's not being playfully going, ha-ha, you can't catch me, I'm never going to give it all away. It's more like, it seems to me, he's saying that you mustn't, otherwise you'll destroy this fragile mystery, and it's only a fragile mystery, and that's why you can't. It, and and I'm, I don't think I'm thinking that just after, just because he died. You know, you know, this death is a great punchline. 
to the album, sort of. But I don't think that's the case. It, it feels like there's a kind of um, he's sort of flirting with the idea of kind of just not bothering to pretend anything mm-hmm. when confronted with this looming enormity. It's good, but it's an old, it's a sort of dinosaur genre as well, isn't it? It's quite hard to imagine. You mean the well, I think you have musical to... tone of it? Yeah, there's the idea that you even get a statement in the form of an album from an artist. Oh, I in see. In that whole... way, right, right, right. it has to have lived that archive journey, if you like, that was his life, that's all of our lives. Yeah, I wonder if young people um, had a similar experience with it or if it was only people of a certain age that were listening to that album right the way through and uh, going on that journey. I mean, we're talking about iTunes. You're still iTunes, albeit ancient version thereof. You're not streaming music? No. I'm, I'm pretty averse to being read, right. just on principle. So I was introduced to, you know, we were at a screening last night and um, a friend said, oh, meet my friend, he works for Spotify. And I immediately went, whoa, data extractor. Yeah. So I'm not in a very good uh, mental state to deal with <laughs> those kind of things I mean I just don't no I actually I do just quite like sort of getting a CD and loading it on you know yes. a lossless or you know some other high spec. I like it too and I have that acquisitive whatever you want to call it hoarders instinct yeah, but they're pretty crummy things to hoard aren't they really I mean they're they are especially when snappy. the fucking you update the thing which I do and then oh your whole library's gone and all that all those hours of organising things into playlists, which I have spent so much time on over the years. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's all... I'm, yeah, it's fine. It's a tool. Yeah. It's quite a good tool. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to... To the loo, do you do this? Yeah, everything, anything goes. Okay. It's, it's cool. Have a big spliff. Mm. It's fucking... There was one on the pavement just outside. Was there? <laughs> okay. It's podcast, man. It's, it's the Wild West. Mm. You can fill. Is there out. a coffee oh, machine? Oh, yes, I will get you a coffee. What, how would you like... But, but go to the loo first. I've just a black coffee. I can make it. No, are you yeah. still running? They'll do it upstairs. Say again? You still, are you still running? I'm still running. So okay. I'll keep it friendly. Fine. All right. This will probably be the... Yeah. You're relying on me for something, man. on stage occasionally but not stand up right you never got on stage and just what did an hour yeah what is it with these villains no no I've stood up in front of people and done impressions that's about it have you really (laughs) only but I mean just like you know at university yeah not nothing that you really even want to shine a dim light on Mm -hmm. yeah Frank Spencer uh, actually, no, it was impressions of this staff. It was, you know, oh, okay. I wove them into a sort of right. Neil Young song. Oh, yeah. And, you know, constructions. But you've played music on stage, though, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's a time when I used to say, yeah, I'm going to leave university, I'm going to be in a band. But, mm. I mean, it was sort of nonsense. I could play bass and a bit of guitar. And the key measure for me was whether you can play when you've had a drink. Mm-hmm. And I would lose lock if I ever had lock with the drum kit or the drummer. I would lose lock maybe after less than a pint. And I've seen people play when they have forgotten their name and play brilliantly. You know, some musician who just is a professional. Yes. This guy couldn't remember who he was, but he got <laughs> up on stage and he played like a dream. Right. And that sort of 
neurological bulletproofing to the sedatives, I think, distinguishes proper musicians from what I am. Yeah. Jack White was pretty hammered at Glastonbury a couple of years ago, drinking champagne from a bottle in a very vulgar fashion. That's quite uh, sophisticatedly debauched. Old school rock and roll, yeah. But was he any good? He was pretty good. It was sloppy. It was definitely sloppy. You see, I I mean, when the White Stripes first came out, I saw them twice and three times in rapid succession, and they played brilliantly every time. Mm. The third time was that golden moment where a band suddenly realises that the world is theirs for the taking. And so it went kind of small venue, good gig, small venue, good gig, bigger venue, we're going all the way. And it's that kind of... Go- I saw the strokes at that same point. Oh, and it's yeah. like it drives your, your high for three days on that. But every time in his guitar playing, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have been drunk. It's like he's going to fall over, but I don't think you can play like that unless you're wired. You know, there was nothing softened. The whole thing is kind of like bristling with a sort of almost disastrous nervous energy. Yeah. Did you see the pixies in their pomp? Yeah, but I was already hardline disappointed because uh, Boss and Over had just come out. And as a hardline fan... You were sort of you, Steve Albini... I was right there, Surfer Rosie. I, f- I wrote Surfer Rosie. Surfer Rosie. And I sort of felt Doolittle sh- had some signs that maybe things might not go well, but there was some th- just thumping greatness in there. And then Boss and Over... It wasn't that it was bad. It's just that there was something so... Fairly strange. It was it was sort of thin pieces. and tinny, wasn't it? Yeah, but also, you know, in a, in I mean, just the room acoustic mm-hmm. on Surfer Rosa. But yeah, I saw them. I mean, they were in their pomp retrospectively in 1990. I mean, it was great. I was mm. just being hyper picky. That was Brixton Academy, wasn't yeah, it? it? Was I was there too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When they played those long encores of Vamos. Yeah. And Joey was smashing up his guitar. So good. But also, they did seem to play every song they'd ever written. Yeah. And so some of the similarities were sort of unignorable. Not that's a bad thing. But again, at the time, I sort of thought, yeah, but you've done that. And it's, it's, it's a really savage thing that you do, isn't it? When somebody comes in so brilliantly, you hold them to that high account. Yes. It's the same with Prince. I mean, Prince, in the mid-'80s, was just... He made three or four albums that you just couldn't believe when you heard them. And then after that, it was like, well, sorry, mate. Yeah. You're only brilliant. And but if you ever saw him live, you know, he was so talented that it was, it made every other musician you'd seen look like they were being a bit ridiculous. Because with Prince, there was, like, it made you realise that almost every band you see, there's a sense that maybe there's going to be a mistake or maybe it might fall to bits at some point. He, he just seemed to be, like, flying above everything. Astonishing. Mm. Really. Yeah. This, is old, this is old geezer stuff, isn't it? I like it, though. It's comforting. Like um, Chernobyl. Like Chernobyl. <laughs> is it a, it's a compulsion that leads you to explore that leading edge all the time. Yeah, I'm still a, a curiosity seeker, looking at the uh, idiosyncrasies of, of things. A mountain, or a tree, is the manifestation of forces that we are not capable of dealing with. I'm very drunk in this. You're in promotional mode. Well, it's not really a mode, and it's not... It's, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine, because you've done all of this work. You might as well prattle on about it. Right. And there's a lot of footnotes. Yeah. So it's basically divesting your brain of surplus garbage that you build the film on. Right. Screening. Right. right. Thanks very much. Well, yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> Screening last night at the Ritzy in Brixton. And that was fun. That was good. Do you sit in the screenings? Or... I've stopped that now. Right, I okay. reached the point where, I mean, because obviously you know that you see it so many times and yeah. you have to telescope up and down the line of sort of familiarity so that you're up at the coalface working sort of beat by beat, moment by moment, fragments of time tweaking to make things better. And then you 
go to the other end of the telescope and try and pretend you've never seen any of this before. And this is during the edit process. Mm-hmm. And then when you see it in a viewing theatre, well, it's quite sterile. And maybe you're doing the grade and you can often turn the sound down so I'm just looking at the pictures so I'm not experiencing the film. But once you've seen it in... I mean, this will sound ridiculous and sort of very basic, but the, it, it seems to me that the bigger the audience, the better. And that's not a sort of... Uh, megalomaniacal thought. It's simply that the film rides a different way. I mean, we, we played it with 1,200 people in South by Southwest, and it it suddenly feels like you're sort of on an ocean of of response. And then I think I watched it sometime after that, possibly for a technical reason, and it literally fell to pieces in front of me. I sort of, I kept thinking, this doesn't make any sense at all. Not that it doesn't. I mean, it makes quite careful sense but my brain had given up and had started looking at it as fractals from different universes that had accidentally been piled into a jug do you panic in those moments no no I knew it was fine but I just knew that I couldn't watch it right again uh for a bit anyway but it is great to see it with an audience Mm. I'm glad that they I think the audience thing disables what you were talking about when we were talking about the uh, Pixies and being harsh on your favourite bands. That hypercritical mindset that I think is heightened when you're on your own and you are sat watching something on a computer or whatever in your room at the end of the night, I don't know. And I think the net age has birthed that specific type of critical mindset that you see in all the videos on YouTube of people saying, here's 10 things that's, that were wrong with the last Star Wars movie and all that kind of thing. I Well, except that, you know, I was in an audience of whatever it is, 2000 at that Pixies gig, being hyper-analytical, but then I've always had a sort of right, okay, strange yeah. sort of... Uh, you know, Peter Bainham's uh, impression of me going to a gig is like that, standing there, arms folded, frowning, scowling for, for two hours, and then going, that was brilliant. We went to see Beck in uh, 1997, yeah. when he just sort of invented the, the mucking about version of Beck. Because I saw him in 94, where he was in this bar in Barcelona, running around the stage, trying to play every instrument, sort of almost falling over, mm-hmm. shambolic, obviously talented, but not quite crystallised. And then he sort of invented this kind of ridiculous version of presentation and they'd sort of smashed up their guitars after the first song yes. and all that. It was great. It was a great show. But yeah, I just scowled throughout and then said, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So, you know, I'm not a good person to go to things with. Same in the cinema. I, I was banned by my family from going to watch films with them. <laughs> <laughs> because, so I do, I'm, I'm not sure, sometimes an audience response can, can switch me the other way. Like, these people are all mad. They're all mad. Yeah. What is wrong with everyone? And then I go into a sort of, what is wrong with, people's brains have been cooked by trivia and nonsense you know it throws you into that so I'm not always born it's the crowd can be a perilous thing it's like I tell you what it's like when that old argument about canned laughter you know when people sort of go well it's a real shame that they use the dated technique of uh, canned laughter on certain things and what they're normally referring to is in fact that the program they've watched is not funny but the audio texture is insisting that it is. Yeah. Because if in something like Father Ted, where you've got laughter, it is very funny, and the audience, it just seems to be doing exactly the right thing. So it's only when there's a sort of dissonance between the two that people suddenly say, it's about time we got rid of uh, audience tracks on comedies. It's the same in a, with an audience in a cinema. You, know, mm. you can either be with them or against them, depending on the quality of, I think, anyway. Yeah. Um, of the quality of your mood. Yes, exactly. Now, is that a fan? I think there's a thing over there. That whole machinery over there makes it's got a little medley setting. A while ago, it was rattling and clicking, but now it's whirring. Maybe it's a dishwasher. Oh, it's an ice machine. Oh. Oh. Yes, they killed the ice machine. So tonight's gig here. Yeah. Warm drinks only. So the thing that uh, people seem to preface conversations or articles about you with that's not a good sentence it's is uh, oh it's taking you so long why does it take so long it's getting longer isn't it and I could only hazard I mean you know I used to do radio shows daily and then weekly or bi-weekly or tri-weekly or whatever yeah it's getting longer it could be mental decay 
I mean, you do do other things in between, don't you? So, like, you script edit Stuart Lee's TV show, or at least you have done on occasion. Yeah, I couldn't pretend, though, that they take up chunks of time. I mean, they're a commitment to a month or two. And, you know, script editing Stu is not really like script editing narrative script. It's sort of a suggestion here or there, bouncing ideas around, because obviously he knows how to make his own stuff anyway, and it it, it really generates itself off an audience. Mm. So you're just there as a kind of friend, or a critical friend. And that's just lucky to be able to do that. But it's not the thing that got in the way of this. Mm. You know, I think it's just, this is a bit of an undertaking, and the question might be, come on, mate, what are you doing? Why don't you just do something closer to home? But it seems that I've got some curiosity about things aren't necessarily close to home. You, you have to be interested, and I have lots of ideas that I'm not really that interested in, so I just don't do them. Mm. And I can't imagine doing something that you're not interested in. Yeah. And then if the interest takes you a long way, you have to make a lot of discoveries about the American government and about people who live in the poorest parts of American cities and all of the elements in between that are reflected in the film. Well, it's just what you've got to do. And I think it's... I mean... I'm looking over at a picture on the wall of the two North Down venue of Guz Khan. You've met Guz. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to him and he was saying that he was a big fan of Four Lions and that actually that was a sort of pivotal moment for him as far as getting into a certain type of comedy that he hadn't really been exposed to very much. Like he grew up as an Eddie Murphy aficionado and your sort of stuff wasn't really so much on his radar but Four Lions he was really knocked out by and particularly impressed by the sort of level of knowledge that seemed to run through it. Yeah, I guess it's a result of a trajectory of inquiry uh, being welcomed at the other end so that you're hanging around with families right. and just seeing who says what when they come in the room. I mean, I, you know, I made a lot of good friends on that sort of season of research and it really went in quite deep. It resonated. I was kind of, I felt I was meeting in some ways old England. You know, you go to Keithley and you sit down in a Pakistani man's house. He's about 30, but he sounds like a Hovis advert voiceover. Mm-hmm. And the sort of family values and all of those things are strong. And hospitality to strangers is strong. And, you know, so you just pick that up and then of course and all of the jocularity and all the ways people tease each other for you're more religious than I am and you're you know it sort of goes in you know we did a screening in Manchester just last week and um, Afi who was one of the people became a very good friend his whole family came along his mum always makes me a curry you know because home cooking curry is way better than anything you get in a curry house Uh she thinks I don't eat enough so you know this sort of 75 year old lady comes with a kind of um, big bag of delicious goodies and but that's just a sort of natural that's just it's a fantastic thing really mm. I mean we don't do enough of that I think yeah in, 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 you know it, it's, we're just kind of like everything's so convenient or off the shelf but it really means something you know I treasured this I carried this curry around for two days and then we had it when I got home really good yeah it is nice isn't it someone came to a gig of mine and made she runs an empanada stall in Norwich Market and she brought along some of her wares. And it was, I was, it was really touching and, yeah, I think and it tasted great. Mm. I don't know, maybe that's just a sort of sentimental... But that's nice, Gus said that. I mean... Uh, yeah, I suppose it's possible that you could spend a couple of days on Wikipedia and make the same film. You no, know I mean? you don't no, 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 I couldn't. I mean, I really... I'd almost... I'd tempt my, the lazy side of myself and say... Oh, yeah, but there's, you, you, I said to a friend of mine three years ago, I'm making a film about the FBI, about sting operations, and he went, we kind of know that the FBI do that, but we know in a Wikipedia, I've read it on Wikipedia or I've read it in a book kind of way. Once you're there in an FBI office and you feel the way it works, you're in a totally different zone. Once you're there with a family who's two members of whom have just been set up in this kind of weird Truman Show world that the FBI generate to sort of perpetrate these stings and you've seen that how the family's been decimated and how confused they still are about what the hell happened the meaning of what you've read completely changes it becomes physical 
and the words mean nothing. It's almost like the youthful sophistication of like, yeah, we know the FBI do that. And the, the cops, it's like the cops, they're always going to fuck you up, man. You know, it does, it's nothing like that. And until you've actually gone there, hung around it, you aren't really in a position to write it because your writing is driven by this kind of, um, your retention of the feeling and the feeling of the people and sort of how they joke with each other or how they interact or the things that they say that mean something to them. And is this sounding a bit method? I mean, I just couldn't imagine doing it any other way. It's, it's, it, it's not there. If you, it's, it's a bit like doing an essay off, off the internet, you mm-hmm. know, doing Wikipedia. Is that because you feel that to not do that would be disrespectful as well? Or No, I just think it's the only way to do it. Right. It's, it's, like, it's like Wikipedia is great as a sort of signpost, but you don't know it, do you? If you've read it on Wikipedia, you don't know it because you haven't breathed it. I mean, I could go on Wikipedia and look up Liberty City in Miami and I could read that it's a Roosevelt project in the 30s. I could read all the things that I say in a Q&A about it. But when you actually go there, yeah. it's about... Let's pick a number, 500 times more real, even than watching Moonlight, which is shot around that part of Miami. When I saw Moonlight, I was like, what? You shot there? And of course, the author grew up there, so it's kind of different for him. Mm-hmm. But until you've actually set foot there and felt this very strange, like, you know, these barrack houses, these low-level bungalows or two-story buildings surrounded by an ironic white picket fence which feels as much like a sort of prison fence as a perfect American home, and felt the level of just the electricity to do with working in an environment which is governed by who owns which corner and what's this stranger doing there, are they relevant or not? You know, just that world. It's like the world of the wire in a more tropical setting. Until you've felt that, you can't really write about it, even if you're not writing about it directly, but you're writing about a fringe preacher whose way of getting by in that environment is to make up his own ideology and get a small following. Wikipedia wouldn't have told me that if you drive up one of the roads that borders Liberty Square, there are more missions than shops. The Church of Christ, the Whispering Listener, or, you know, the Holy Spirit and Mother Mary, I mean, just made-up names tells you of the need in an area for belief systems on your doorstep. Mm -hmm. It also tells you what you can get a license for. You can basically get a license off the city for drink stores and missions. So it tells you something about money as well. But, you know, it's all of those things. And you talk to people who are there. And then you can start to... After all, writing a script, this all sounds very serious, but writing a script is essentially you're trying to bullshit with great authority. And by that I mean that, you know, I have never served in the FBI, but I try and convey a reality that people who are in that situation recognise, would recognise, so that you're a good bullshitter rather than a bad one. Right. Hello, my friend, it's good to see you again. I've got to say you're looking great. I love what you've done with your nipples and your knees and your shiny bald pate. Is the process of putting a film together still enjoyable or is it just a total nightmare and you just have to kind of look forward to it? Finishing? Are you just sort of firefighting the whole time? It's not a nightmare, is it? In com- you know comparison to sure. Like- I mean, so first of all, you have to elevate it from all jobs that are life and death and proper yes. jobs, because essentially you've it's this enormous confection. And then once you take that confection seriously, then you can start to call it a nightmare in your own <laughs> little world. Yeah. But yes, I mean, it's a sort of you know, it's a battle of a million decisions and problems. Right. It's just problem solving all the way and you have a whole team of experienced and brilliant people to see the problems coming. Is it a nightmare? I mean, the thing about a nightmare is the ultimate feeling that within that dreamscape, you can do nothing and you're at the mercy of whatever terror is menacing you. So... With filmmaking, I've not reached that point yet. No. I mean, there are points where you feel close, 
but then there's always some bit of your brain or somebody else's brain who, that kicks in. Uh-huh. So it can be tough. It can be really tough. And the thing was, it was tough this time. And I kept thinking, you know, we were out in the Dominican Republic. There were many, many things that were not ideal about the shoot. But I thought, the trouble is, there's no glory in this. No matter how difficult it gets, this is not shooting Fitzcarraldo. <laughs> so the only excuse, really, for complaining about it is if you have a hulk of a boat that capsizes or threatens to crush your crew or, you know, and you're up a river miles from anywhere and a plane bringing supplies has crashed or, you know. Right. So if you're feeling bad about it, shut up. Yes. Did it make you pine for a more manageable world in TV and... Doing there are those... some aspects, there are some aspects, definitely, it's the way... This is industry talk now, but um, I think boldness is shrinking in line with the strange fact that sequels always did better than originals, even if originals were much better than the sequels. So you've got a sort of shrinking environment, people watching films on different platforms. Mm-hmm. Cinema is threatened and it decreases boldness. So it is harder. You have to really hustle in an in independent film to get money. And that's not always enjoyable either. It's just frustrating. And I think television, on the other hand, seems to be just handing out, you know, there is a sort of paradigm which just goes, yeah, you want to do that? Do it. It just depends whether something's a one-off or whether it's a series. And I'm not sure I have the right brain to write a series. It'd be great if I did. Mm Mm-hmm. So, what was the last thing like that you did? Nathan Barley, I guess. Yeah, oh no, that sort of series. That's a little series. I mean, they're like 10 one hours, like, you know, Jesse doing oh, Succession. Yeah. Amazing undertaking. I mean, I, I sort of just feel dizzy trying to, and, and upset even imagining trying to do that. Yeah. Like, like 90 minutes is bad enough. But if, if something like that comes along, then suddenly TV seems to be the, the right place. It's a harder place for a single item. It's not really rackable, is it, in the big shop of Netflix? a one-off, you have to have a chain, you have to have a sort of, yeah. a little world of your own. Now it seems as if three or four is an acceptable way to go. Yeah, that's not too hard, is it? Come yeah. on, it must be possible. That's what Guz Khan does. A quartet. What is it? What is series it? of four. Yes. At what, what length? 25 minutes. Yes. No, I mean, you can do all sorts of strange things, but I think by the time you're looking for that sort of financial freedom, you need to be pitching to one of these big... Uh, platforms, right? A big thing. What about the? It's a new platform just for mobiles, so it's mobile streaming, and Spielberg's doing, and so it's lots of pitches for things that would be good to watch on a mobile phone, and various types of environments where you might be looking at your phone. So one of them is this idea of Spielberg, and he is making a horror series, but it's designed to be watched with the lights on. Okay, under the sheets kind of thing, when after you've gone to bed. It'll only play if the phone knows that there's no light in the room. That's already mildly upsetting, isn't it? That's, uh, that I mean, is, it's a quite an interesting idea. Right? Sort of, but... but teenage, like, so you're pitching to a teenage... I guess. So this actually will have with it, somewhere in the package, the knowledge that teenagers are the most marketable to group. Yeah. So that somewhere within this will be a sort of a measuring teenager's mind metric. You know, like that sort of experiment Facebook did where they realised that the more upset teenagers were, the more likely they were to make comfort purchases. Right. So they fed certain people the worst of their friends' reactions in order to make them more unhappy and then put a nice thing in their path that might be a comforting purchase. Right. Now... That, that was a little experiment that was kind of exposed in, in Australia. I mean, they're sort of doing this kind of thing all the time because that's why they exist. But within this nice idea, it's kind of imaginative, isn't it, that you make a little horror thing that's just going to terrify the fucking shit out of a teenager as they watch under the covers. Um, there will be somebody going, and we can probably use the camera on the phone to look at their face and listen to their responses and, I don't know, the rest of that stuff. Harvest terror data. Well... You know, it's all available, isn't it? Yeah. It's all available. Why would they not? But it just seems like, from from a purely creative point of view, it seems like an odd place to start to... Well, yeah, it's imaginative to the extent, because when you were forming the question, I was thinking, when you said the ideal place to watch 
something on a mobile phone or the ideal film to watch on a mobile phone, I was thinking, is there such a thing or is it just that the mobile phone gives you it first? So you sit there with a bit of your brain going, I know this isn't ideal, but I'm seeing it now. I don't have to wait. But the idea that you would be going, this is better on this screen is a bit odd, unless it's kind of sharing information about your friends. You know, that stuff is obviously quick and instant. Mm -hmm. But watching Stranger Things or something on your phone surely isn't Yeah, really. You know that, don't you? And you just go, yeah, I'm going to take the hit, though, because I'm on a bus and I want to catch up. Also, I do think your brain recalibrates very quickly. It's like that. I'm always talking about that clip of David Lynch complaining about people watching films yeah. on their yeah. fucking phone. Yeah. You think you've seen a film because you've watched it on your fucking phone? You haven't. And I always think... We'll yeah. all get there. <laughs> but I do feel as if... I know what he means, but it's certainly a different experience. But you, you think your brain attuned so that you could watch a Christopher Nolan widescreen yeah. film on your phone and think this is just as good as the big projection on that monstrous screen. I'm going to say yes because I want to sound decisive. Good. And unequivocal. Yeah, and I'm not going to challenge it because yes. how could I possibly... I've never done it. <laughs> Have you not? Be irresponsible. But I've never You've watched films on planes film. though, right? Yeah. But that actually is... Number one, it's an environment it, you're escaping. Right. The only time I didn't really escape was when I watched Creed on a plane and we had turbulence for an hour and a quarter. So watching boxing with acute turbulence on the plane somehow added to the experience. It's the only time I've been on a plane when it's added because I, yeah, it was big. Each time a punch was thrown, you were kicked in the ass by right. a bump of air. Uh, it wasn't, it's not entirely comfortable, but it did enhance the experience. Some things work better than others. Don't you think documentaries work better than... Yeah. Um, Spectacles. Yeah. Yes. The spectacles have diminished. Yeah, and you, I mean, the, the thing is that being in the cinema really does enhance your experience of it, no doubt. I went to see um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the other day with my eldest son, and I was not looking forward to it. Was he? Yes, because he Did loves he? Brad Pitt. He thinks Brad Pitt's some kind of acting genius. And maybe he is. Like, he certainly turned in a few good performances. But for me, I still have Faint that... praise. I still have that prejudicial <laughs> mindset that I first had, you know, the, your, your first... It's a bit like people who think Kylie Minogue is a sort of musical titan. And I just find it hard to take them seriously because to me, it's I should be so lucky and she was Charlene and I don't think she is a musical titan. I'm sure she's a wonderful person and, and brilliant at what she does. But... I feel you have to cover you. You just didn't want that bit of Twitter to be activated, did no. you? <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so leaving Brad Pitt and whatever yeah. you said, he's phoned in a couple of passable performances, whatever it was that you said. Yeah. You went and watched. <laughs> went and watched on watched a big screen. time in Hollywood on the big screen, and the experience of sitting there and being enfolded by it is enjoyable in itself. And I think Tarantino's aware of that and knows what kind of blanket to weave to properly. The textural sort of scale yeah. of, yes. Because people have complained, have you seen it? Yeah. I've heard people complaining about, oh, it's so boring, and the boring long driving, and oh, boring. But personally, I've been way more bored in some of his other films. Like, uh, have you seen Death Proof? No. That is like an intellectual exercise in extreme boredom that I actually assumed was a sort of art prank it's like, how bored can we make an audience for an hour? Let's make them incredibly bored. But in the end, in the last quarter of an hour or whatever, everything just explodes and we crank the action and the excitement up to 11. And what does that do to an audience? And for me, you know, I came out of it sort of vibrating because I'd been so bored and then suddenly so excited. I was like, wow, this is a new kind of excitement. I'm imagining sort of straight story with Transformers at the end or something. It's like a very strange graph. Like there's a, there's a, a sort of 25 minute scene in a cafe where people are just sat around having a chat. Not and, great dialogue. And not great dialogue, mm. no. Totally forgetting. Willfully dull. Though. Yeah, it seemed that way. I was thinking, what's he doing? He's a clever guy. He's Kubricking around, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's, he's he must know what he's doing. But it's like Kubrick as, as well, you know, sort of lauded as he is, there's 
there's really great and there's really not great mm -hmm. in the canon. So if you have somebody who's a master of technique or even very good with technique, it's like I was talking to my son when we went to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was so bored by the film that um, I actually laughed when the caption comes up six months later because <laughs> it presumed that I was fucking interested. <laughs> and, um, you know, my wife laughed a lot. And we all laughed. We all sat in a laughing line. And um, I was talking to my son about this. And he said, well, the thing about it is, he said, it's, it's cinema, but it's not a film. And then there were these categories of like, so is it cinema, is it a movie, or is it a film? Okay. You can go quite a long way on that one. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, it, and, and it was sort of, I think a film has to be a story, but cinema is an experience, like the texture you were talking about. Right. And there's no doubt, that, and particularly that scene where they turn up at the Manson Ranch. Yep. Suddenly you go, okay, we're cooking. This is, exactly. you click, you click and you know what you're doing. And then it sort of doesn't quite deliver, but you definitely get that, yeah. whoa, you get you know, it's like a Western or something, isn't it? You go, right, yeah. scene set, and we're um, off. I don't know, because it's hard to know what somebody's doing when they make a film, but, you know, we went back and looked at the trailer, I hadn't seen the trailer, so we looked at the trailer and thought, well, yeah, this is kind of like as inconsequential as the film seemed to be, whereas you look at Django Unchained, and the trailer for that sets these balls up and then lets them run down. It's linear almost, slaves stopped in a wood, confrontation, bored-looking guy, boredly shoots the slave master, goes off with Django, conversation, do you know what a bounty hunter is? Stack, 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 let's play. So, obviously, you're making decisions if you're Tarantino. You know what you're doing. It's kind of like, can we decode what that is? Or are you going to laugh at the captions? <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Hey! Hey, welcome back, podcats. Chris Morris there, talking to me last month. September 2019 at the King's Cross comedy venue 2 North Down, a great small venue. Uh, I've posted a link to their site in the description of this podcast. And I'm pretty sure I switched the ice machine back on when we finished recording. But if not, apologies for the warm drinks at that night's show. Speaking of links, in the description of this podcast... What have you got there this time? Well, you've got a link to some footage that I found on YouTube of Le Petomène du Moulin Rouge. Because, as I said in the intro, I, I wasn't previously familiar with the concept of a petomène. P-E-T-O-M-A-N-E. So there's a petomène who is a theatrical farter, and then there was Le Petomène, which was the stage name of the most famous of the... French flatulists. Uh, he was the entertainer Joseph Pujol, born in 1857, died in 1945. He was famous for his remarkable control of the abdominal muscles, which enabled him to seemingly fart at will. His stage name combines the French verb pété, to fart, with the men suffix, meaning maniac, translating to fartomaniac. 
The profession is also referred to as flatulist, farter, or fartiste. <laughs> I think I'm a fartiste. It is a common misconception that Joseph Pujol actually passed intestinal gas as part of his stage performance. Rather, Pujol was able to inhale or move air into his rectum and then control the release of that air with his anal sphincter muscles. Anyway, look, I posted a, a bit of film, very early film, of uh, Le Petoman at work at the Moulin Rouge. It's pretty good. And as I said, never heard of the guy before. I hadn't seen it before. And when you see it, a whole load of Monty Python suddenly makes a lot more sense. And you think, oh, right. That's where they got all of that stuff. What other links are there? Slightly more serious links. The book that Chris mentioned when we were talking about Chernobyl, he couldn't remember the author. It was Kate Brown. And the book is called Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. And we were talking about mobile phone radiation in a very general and unscientific fashion there. A few articles in the description of this podcast that certainly won't clear up any anxieties you have about whether mobile phone radiation is harmful or not. But, well, it's further reading. On a nuclear tip... George Monbiot, that article that he wrote after Fukushima in 2011, linked to the video for No Plan by David Bowie, the last single. And a couple of bits of footage. I tried to find footage of the Pixies playing at the Brixton Academy in 1990. I think that's the show that we saw just after Bossa Nova was released in August of that year. But I couldn't find any... There's a show from the following year, but no, nothing. I couldn't find anything with the performance of Vamos and Joey smashing up his guitar. Uh, but I did find these two great bits of Snub TV, an excellent music show that used to be on in the late 80s on, I think, BBC Two. And uh, they, they had a, a live session from the Pixies playing Tame and I bleed, and there's also a bit of live footage from around that time, 89, I think, of them playing Vamos, which is very good. That's pretty much it, though, for this week. It's been a busy week. Two podcasts in one week. I'm like Joe Rogan or something, churning them out. Rosie, how are you doing? Uh, She's looking back at me. She's doing a bit better. Recently, she's been a little bit grumpy. I think maybe she wasn't feeling very well this last week. We took her to the vet, but the vet said she was okay. It was weird. She was sort of wandering around, just staring at us, imploringly, as if to say, what are you going to do about it? And we were going, what? What is it? Are you hungry? Do you want to go out? Do you want to scritch scratch? Do you want to play with a towel? And nothing seemed to be making her happy, you know. She didn't want to jump up and lay her head on my lap on the sofa while I was watching the news. It was weird. But anyway, she seems okay now. At one point I was thinking, maybe there's ghosts in the house. And she can see these ghosts sat with us on the sofa while we're watching the news. Or maybe it was just the news itself that was freaking her out. The other night we were watching the thing about Trump's letter to the Turkish president, John Sopel, the North American correspondent, was talking about some of the things (laughs) in that fucking letter. And, you know, he was quoting President Trump said this unbelievable thing in his letter and President Trump said this incredibly childish thing in his letter. and, And it was one of those moments where you're reminded, oh, it's President Trump. It's President Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the president. And then I started saying to my wife, uh, Richard Madeley's been in talks all day with the Syrian president who said that he and Richard Madeley could not come to an agreement. Uh, Judy Finnegan has offered to mediate. My wife said, yeah, that's not funny, though, because Richard Madeley would be a good president. And we had an argument 
I was saying, look, I like Richard Madeley. I like him way more than I ever liked Donald Trump. But I don't think that he would be a good president. She would say, yo, no, he's clever. He'd be a good president. He'd be better than Trump. And I was saying, yeah, that's possibly true. But I don't think that would be a good choice. Rosie, come on, let's head back. Are you joking? We've only just gone out. What do you think? Would Richard Madeley be a good president? Maybe Rosie would be a good president. Dear Mr. Buxton, it's time for some mutual scratch scratch. You don't want to be responsible for chastising a nice dog that everyone loves and looking like a dog racist. And I don't want to be responsible for doing poo-poo and wee-wee on your bed. And I will. I already gave you a little sample in the spare room last week. So please give me some more nice chicken in my bowl as well as those little stupid crunchy biscuit things that smell like a human bum. Hey, look, thank you very much indeed once again to 2 North Down for letting us record there and thanks most of all to Chris Morris. Once again, I would urge you to go along and support his film The Day Shall Come in cinemas now. Sure, you can go and see Joker. You've got to go and see Joker so you can have those dinner party conversations. But go and see The Day Shall Come as well. Till next time, be excellent to each other. That's the Wild Stallions catchphrase. I'm not claiming that as my own. But I think it's a good one. And... Um, you know, for what it's worth, I do, I, well, I love you. Bye!